I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome aboard the New Scientist Escape Pod. This is the podcast for the ultimate escapism and distraction from everyday life. (laughs) That is the cry of a beast desperately wanting to escape everyday life, and we'll get to why in a minute. (laughs) Each week we're here to talk about stuff that will hopefully distract you from everyday worries, whisk you away in a world of wonder and fascination. I'm Anna Deming, New Scientist Features Editor. And I'm Timothy Revel, New Scientist Comment and Culture Editor. And I'm Rowan Hooper, Podcast Editor. This week's theme is speed. <laughs> not the Keanu Reeves movie, I've just realised, and not the amphetamine drug. I'll be looking at the <laughs> fastest <laughs> I'll be looking at the fastest animal on the planet. And I'm travelling at the fastest speed it is possible to travel according to the laws of physics. And I'm spending some quality time with the world's fastest computer. And just before all that is our regular reminder that you can get the ultimate escapism with a discount subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash escape20. Now that noise is one I've been hearing echoing around Charing Cross Hospital in Hammersmith in West London near where I live. That's the cry of the fastest animal in the world. It's the peregrine falcon, which can reach speeds of over 320 kilometres per hour. That's over 200 miles an hour during its stoop dive when it catches prey. My word. You you wouldn't (laughs) guess that from its its cry, I don't think. It doesn't sound like it's really quick just from the noise it makes. Uh, Well, that's uh, deceptive, isn't it? Yeah. I think the, the fastest stoop it's, uh, it's ever been recorded was 389 kilometres per hour. That's 242 miles an hour. Uh, I mean, I have to say, peregrines have been a real, uh, one of the only joys of lockdown, actually, for me. <laughs> I've, been, um, I've been watching a family of them living on top of the hospital here uh, for about a year now and getting to know them and becoming aware of the relationships between different birds, different bird species as well. I, you know, like I never really was aware of before. Um, And seeing the falcons hunt is properly breathtaking. So you see them cruising along normally and they catch the sun and that's beautiful, circling around. But then their wings fold back into a kind of attack position and they start this dive. And the acceleration is just amazing to see. So what are they going for? I hope it's not 
people with chips or whatever. <laughs> no, 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 they're much classier. Well, the, the diet of the West London peregrine is uh, pigeon and parakeet mainly. And oh. that call that we heard before, uh, that was a female calling for food when the male has just flown back with a, a kill. Yeah, I mean, the speed is, is just really hard to wrap your head around. I mean, I feel like I'm going quite fast on my bike when I'm moving at 20 <laughs> miles an hour. Well, yeah. How do they go at 200 miles an hour? Yeah, so at that at that speed, the air pressure could really damage the lungs. But the falcon's got these little nodules in the nostril that guide airflow away. So it reduces pressure uh, during the dive. And they've got something called a nictating membrane, which is a third eyelid, which is kind of basically like wearing goggles and keeps their oh, eyes clear as they're diving. And I think the coolest thing is that their, their kind of image processing power is different to um, us, different to mammals. Um, so there's something called the flicker fusion threshold, which is the Ooh. frequency at which uh, a light stimulus appears to be completely steady. So you know like when um, our eyes notice if a light strip um, starts to get old and it starts flickering, and that's because its frequency slows down enough for us to notice it. So the flicker fusion threshold of the peregrine is is super high, and that means they can see in higher temporal resolution, if that makes sense. They can see faster than us, which is really cool. And when they're so when you're moving and chasing a, a prey item, chasing another bird at 200 miles an hour, you have to be able to see fast, which is... That's amazing. Yeah. I also feel like Flicker Fusion Threshold is a great name for a jazz band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, start it up. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's the other thing that's just I found really kind of moving is that, you know, peregrines were endangered when I was growing up, and now they're all over the place. They're thriving, and especially in cities and urban areas. Um, and if you search for peregrines and your nearest town or city, I'm pretty sure you'll find someone who's uh, set up a telescope there. You can go and see them. Uh, it's just been, uh, yeah, a really great distraction for me this last year watching them. And I have to thank Natalie, who runs the at Fab Peregrines Twitter feed that's about these peregrines on the hospital. Uh, she's an amazing local naturalist. And one more thing before I finish this bit. Here's another clip to play. That's a bit of a different noise. That's the sound of peregrine courtship calling. And Natalie just sent that clip over. And this week she's seen the pair mating. Um, and it, it's a real soap opera going on here on top of the hospital. There's a new female in town. Um, there was a former female and we watched her uh, and the male raise a chick last year. But the female was displaced. And now we have this new one. And she and the male have been doing some spectacular courtship flying, which basically amounts to the male. Uh, dive bombing the female and just peeling away before he hits her and showing off effectively yeah. how amazing he is at flying. And now they've mated, so we might hopefully get peregrine eggs soon. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you'll hear about it from me soon enough. <laughs> yeah, um, next week and, on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, Anna, and, and by the way, there's peregrines in Bristol near you as well. Right. I shall be looking out for the romantic roller coaster they're going through. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So more on speed, there's one speed limit that everyone, everything is obliged to heed, and that's the speed of light in a vacuum. Now defined as 
meters per second. <laughs> oh, is that it? There you go. <laughs> so a nothing bit in the universe. Faster than a peregrine, really. Yeah. <laughs> Even faster than a peregrine. Yeah. <laughs> nothing in the universe, as we know, can go faster than this. So Einstein came to this conclusion, as he mostly did all his conclusions by chatting with like-minded friends and just kind of thinking about it. So he was not a man of full fancy maths and lasers and stuff. It was more a, a tap on the chin and a thought experiment or Gedanken in his native German. Yeah. Well, you know, just a tap on the chin and you come up with that. It makes it sound <laughs> you quite revolutionize easy. the whole of physics, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it helped that by the time Einstein got to the conversation, there was already quite a lot of weight behind the idea that the speed of light was finite, which is quite an important point in itself. And something I find really quite impressive is the ingenuity of the attempts to measure what that speed was. Yeah, I mean, it's impressive even to consider, to come up with the the concept that there is a limit, that there is a speed of light. So I suppose it was astronomers who were the first to do this. Yes, and it was as early as 1638. Galileo apparently had a stab. He tried by literally just exposing a lamp to a friend on a distant hilltop. (laughs) who was supposed to reciprocate by exposing his own lamp when he saw the signal. <laughs> and Glad Galileo would then... was exposing to <laughs> each other. <laughs> well, yes, it was just a lamp. <laughs> yeah. And, um, yeah, so Galileo would then uh, time the delay with the best stop clock at his disposal, which was his pulse. Unfortunately, it might not be a great surprise that it wasn't quite fast enough to measure the <laughs> speed of light. But it was a nice try. And it wasn't long. It was only 50 years later in 1675 that Danish astronomer Olaf Romer Notice that the timing of the eclipses of Jupiter's moon Io changed depending on the distance between Jupiter and the Earth. So he found the assumption, he assumed the difference must be the time it takes for light to travel the extra distance. And from that worked out that the light must be traveling at 200,000 kilometers per second, which is pretty close when you think of the kind of equipment he had to work with at the time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they get even better. <laughs> so... Then, so various 19th century scientists made more accurate measurements, improving on Galileo's method. And notably, Fizu tried shining a lamp through a spinning cog at a mirror eight kilometers away. And noticed that when the, the cog was spun slowly, the light passed back from the mirror through the same gap it shone through. But when he spun it fast enough, he could get a measure for the delay. So his value actually worked out as 315,000 kilometers per second. But it only took Jean-Léon Foucault to replace the cog with a rotating mirror to arrive at the speed of light as 298,000 kilometers per second, which is actually spot on to three significant figures. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? I love those like just seemingly simple ways to measure something incredibly accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Anyway, so people had very cleverly worked out that the speed of light was finite. And Einstein noticed certain problems that this was posing in itself. So say you shine a torch up a train track. And the train is going super, super, super fast. Someone on the train would see the speed of light as slower than someone stood next to the track. Mm. (laughs) Because they would be traveling along the same direction as the light beam. So they would be catching up with it kind of almost a little bit. This means that the speed of light must be constant. And the only way that can work is if time dilates, depending on whether you're on the train or not. So once Einstein got to that little eureka, it was just a case of chugging through a little bit of simple algebra. And it it really wasn't that, you know, he was not man doing sort of crazy complex calculus. He did most of it with his Kedankin experiments and then got to his equations for special relativity. I feel like it's not that surprising. I mean, whenever I'm on a train, time does seem to dilate. (laughs) (laughs) Especially in England. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe a Japanese lightning train, then you might catch up with the speed of light, but not one (laughs) Yeah, it's true. But um, anyway, Tim, (laughs) you've got more speed. So this week I've been um, really geeking out about the world's fastest computer, which is called Fugaku, um, mm-hmm. which is an alternative name for Mount Fuji. Um, so twice a year, there's this competition to see which su- supercomputer is the fastest in the world. And in June last year, Fugaku won and has been in the lead ever since. So it's a supercomputer that was built in Japan um, by Fujitsu, the tech company, and Riken, which is a research institute, and housed in Kobe. So it's the first time a computer based outside the US and China has won the competition for nearly a decade. So it's quite a big deal. And obviously, this thing is absolutely huge and consists of many racks of processors and it it burns incredibly hot. So it's a room filled with air conditioning. Um, But to sort of give you a flavor of how impressive it is, let me hit you with some stats. So in the competition, it essentially has to solve lots of equations, and it performed at around 415 petaflops, um, (laughs) which is floating point operations per second. Or in other words, every second it's able to perform around 415 quadrillion computations. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, which is just mind-blowing. And like a quadrillion is a million billion. So it's just so many calculations every single second. It's really hard to even fathom that. It's the result of six years work and cost about a billion dollars. And is it, uh, you know, have they made some big breakthrough here or have they just sort of done what we already knew to do and just tweaked it better, made it better? Yeah, it's it's more the latter. So it's like the supercomputers tend to not use largely different technology to the same technology in your phone. Apart mm. from the fact that the processors tend to be the highest of highest spec sort of research level, a few away from something that you might actually be able to get in your phone. And then yeah. they use an absurdly large number of them. So right. like your computer has probably got one or two processors, whereas Fugaku uses 48 core chips, which meaning it's got 48 processors on a single chip. And then of these 48 processor chips, it has 160,000 of them. <sighs> okay i can see why it might get a bit hot my laptop gets hot enough (laughs) yeah yeah yours is probably like four two core or four core or something so it's like it's a real big difference and obviously comes with some of its problems as well so there's this fun old quote from a um, early pioneer of supercomputing this guy called seymour cray and he said if you were plowing a field which would you rather use two strong oxen 
or 1,024 chickens. <laughs> like the, yeah. So the, <laughs> I mean, it's sort of a good, it's a good point. So it, it turned out he was actually wrong because he thought that the best thing to do was just build one amazing processor. And it turns out actually it's better to have more processors. But the difficulties he was identifying are, have largely turned out to be true. So if you imagine having all 160,000 of these processors, the, the sort of trick is working out what to do with all the processors to, so that they're doing the right thing at the right time. It's sort yeah, of like herding you know, the chickens, basically. Yeah, exactly. If yeah. you had enough chickens, they could do a quick job. But how do you make sure they're all doing the right thing at the right time? Yeah. And like the sort of a standard analogy that's often used for this is um, thinking about like when performing computations is thinking about being at a supermarket checkout with a big pile of, of shopping um, in your shopping trolley. And so most computers, they would just process this one item at a time doing the you know one thing followed by the next followed by the next and so you're sort of limited by the speed of the person at the checkout and the conveyor belt but in a supercomputer you try to do things as as many things as possible in parallel so in this analogy you might have like a million items in your shopping trolley and then rather than giving it to all uh, all to one checkout assistant who would immediately quit you have to split it between <laughs> thousands of different ones um, and speed it up obviously this has got some drawbacks too because if you needed you sort of need someone to keep an eye on where all the things go and making sure it all comes back together you need to pack your shopping again at the end right? yeah exactly so like if you've carefully placed your bread on top of your tin tomatoes you don't want that to be messed up on the other side and suddenly you've got a squashed piece of bread yeah. um and like that that is a, a really large amount of uh, processing power in a supercomputer goes into exactly this thing so like to give you a flavor of it this Japanese supercomputer uh, with its 160,000 processors is only about 40,000 times faster than the latest PlayStation. So there's quite a big, it's not like it's 160,000 times faster. And actually it's, it's got many more processors than that when you think of the 48 core element. So it's still quite a big difference. I'm, I'm just delighting in the analogies. We've, well, the, we've got the shopping. Fly, I'm just picturing millions of items of shopping flying through checkouts, <laughs> and then I'm imagining Galileo exposing his lamp across the field. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for both of those this week. Uh, I was going to ask about quantum computers, but I think actually we should save that uh, for another theme because that's a whole nother uh, episode. That's all for this week's Escape Pod. We'll be back next week. Uh, yeah, and do subscribe and tell everyone you know about Escape Pod and get in touch on at New Scientist Pod. Also remember, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist by going to newscientist.com slash escape20. That's it. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Oligiu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.